All right. Good morning, everybody. I uh, had a sermon prepared this morning, and then Wendy started talking about all that food at Thanksgiving, and my ADD kicked in, and I don't remember what it is. So he'll come to me, I'm sure. Last week, we were in Joshua chapter 10, and we were talking about a remarkable story about Joshua in the midst of a battle, and he needed more time, had enough courage and boldness and audacity simply to say to God, I need you to make the sun stand still, and God did. And so the, the message last week was asking you, what was your sun stand still prayer in life? What is it that you were asking God for that you know is just a supernatural, miraculous thing that you need in your life? It could be in your marriage, your family, a health issue, something at work. I don't know what it is, but what is it that you are asking God for something bold and audacious that he would actually make for you your sun stand still? And so we're going to pick up, we're going to go from uh, Joshua chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, all the way to Joshua chapter 23 this morning. Now, don't be afraid for just a moment. It, uh, I know that sounds daunting. It's going to be like a, watching a, a sporting event that you've DVR'd, and you don't care about the commentary, so you just kind of hit it once or twice on the fast-forward so you can get a gist and get to the end. That's what we're going to do with Josh. It's going to be a DVR'd fast-forward through the series, so it won't be extra, extra long, I, I don't think. Um, two uh, older ladies were sitting next to each other, and they were complaining about how long the preacher was going and how long the sermon was, and one leaned over the other and said, it was so long, my butt fell asleep from just sitting there. To which her friend said, I know, I think I heard it snore a couple of times. <laughs> I've got a day job. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be just fine. It's going to be all right. <laughs> Chapter 10. Let's start with there. After the sun stands still moment, what happens next is Israel totally defeats five main southern cities. Remember the cities that gathered together, they were going to make an alliance with one another and go after Israel. They all get defeated, and all of them are just uh, annihilated. Then you move on to chapter 11, and you have the story of northern cities who have in their mind to do the exact same thing that the southern cities did, and that is to align themselves together against the people of God and against Israel. And so all of a sudden, these northern cities come together, and they try the same tactic, and you know what happens to them? They too are defeated, just like the southern cities. And the, what you get in chapter 11 is that story. Israel totally defeats uh, the northern cities who had made alliance together. One little interesting to note, uh, thing to note in Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, it says this, For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts. Now picture this. See, in the end, the book of Joshua is not about Joshua. The book of Joshua is about God. That in the end, even though Israel and Joshua as their commander and leader are winning battle after battle, in the end, you know who's responsible for that? It is God. God is making good on his promises. And so it says even from the very beginning, the reason why the northern cities even align themselves is because God hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exter listen, exterminating them without mercy, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You get to chapter 12, and all chapter 12 is it's a big, a big long list of all the kings that have been defeated by the people of God. And so it's a very quick read if you want to go through chapter 12. Just, it's a straight list of this king, this king, this king, this king. When you get to chapter 13, you fast forward a little bit, even in the life of Joshua, and it lets us know that he's older now. In fact, it starts Joshua chapter 13, Lewis says in verse 1, When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old. <laughs> Let's talk what else is funny. I just read that this way. Like, That's just kind of funny. Because we try to hide that we're getting older. You know, we don't want to know. No one's saying anything. I'll tell you, if God comes to you and says, you are very old, then you're old. <laughs> no I mean, God, who's been around forever. Like, when he thinks you're old, then you're past the point. 
Anyhow, Joshua was very old and well advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, uh, you are very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. So when you go through the promises that God made to Abraham and all the land of Canaan that's going to be given to the Israelites, what God notices even in Joshua's older years, he says, there's still some parts of the land that you guys just have not gotten up and done something about that I'm giving it into your hands. And so uh, after that, Joshua gets up with the people of God and they go after and take over parts of the land yet that had not been taken over. And so what you see then in, in the end of chapter 13 becomes the division of the lands east of the Jordan. Let me show you. There's a, here's a map right here. You probably can't read it in the very back, but that's what you get for sitting in the back. Next week, you should be on the front row in the spit zone, and you'll be, that's where you should be. But if you can see all the different color codes, each color represents a tribe of Israel, and there are how many tribes of Israel? Twelve tribes of Israel. And so what it's talking about is, do you see the Sea of Galilee, the body water up at the north, and then the big, long, squiggly line that is the River Jordan that finally dead ends at the Dead Sea at the south? On the east side of that line is the east side of the Jordan, and it belongs to the tribes of Manasseh and to Gad and to Reuben. Now, if you remember in terms of history, the Israelites already conquered the east side of the Jordan in the days of Moses. So Joshua's conquest was all, all the lands on the west. And what's happening in chapter 13 is he's divvying out to the tribes their land uh, there on the east side of the Jordan. When you get to chapter 14, they begin to divide the land on the west of the Jordan. Now, one little note in chapter 14, it's one of my favorite stories. It begins earlier, much earlier in Numbers, but you see the continuation in Joshua chapter 14. There's a man named Caleb, and you've heard me talk about Caleb. Caleb and Joshua were the only two men. They began as spies, like Moses sent them out to be spies. And uh, when the 12 spies came back, 10 of them said, there is no way we can take that land. Those people that live there, they're giants. they got big walls. I mean, there's no way. And only two had enough faith, Joshua and Caleb, to say, no, if God is for us, we can do anything. Now, the ten had their day, and the people of Israel listened to the ten and not to the two. And so God made them wander in a wilderness for 40 years until every single person in their generation died except two men. You know who they were? Joshua and Caleb. So when you get to Joshua chapter 14, what happens is Caleb steps up and he receives his reward for his faithfulness. And I love this story. Look at uh, chapter uh, 14, verse 10. It says, Now then, just as the Lord promised... He has, this, is Josh, or this is Caleb talking. He has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. And so here I am today, 85 years old. Can you picture that? He, I mean, he's an old dude. And really, all of his contemporaries died in the wilderness. So Joshua and Caleb were old men in the nation of Israel. And here he is, 85 years old. He says, I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. And I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that when, that then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. See, I love the Caleb spirit. And I, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In fact, uh, my second son, I named Caleb, which, do you know what Caleb means literally in the Hebrew? It means dog. And see, when you think of a dog, not my dog, like your dogs, when you think of a dog, you'll think of like very loyal, very faithful, that's Caleb. He has a Caleb spirit. When everyone around him says, oh, no, 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 that can't happen, he just knows the power of God, he says yes. With Caleb, it's always, when God's in the equation, it is always a yes. And he has that spirit even when he's 85 years old. And I like this because sometimes people want to retire from the kingdom of God. See, Caleb doesn't want to re It's not like, hey, I turned 65. Maybe a younger generation should do it now. And, you know, you just 
fade out into la-la land. No, no, not Caleb. He says, I'm 85 years old, and I feel just as vigorous and just as strong. I could go to battle now just, now just as much as I was when I was that young man that you sent me out. And I love that spirit. And I would just say to people who are getting older and older, I'm not saying God said to you yet that you're very old, but if you feel like you're getting older, I just want you to know, do not retire from the kingdom of God and allow your spirit, no matter what your flesh and bones might be, like you might have woke up with hip pain and back pain and I mean, I raked my yard yesterday, and I woke up just, man, what? I mean, that didn't happen years ago. But anyhow, if you're, no matter your aches and pains, that your spirit is that of Caleb's where I'm ready to go. Whatever God wants, I don't care that I am 85. And so what happens? Joshua says, my good friend. And just imagine what they all, all the things that Joshua and Caleb had to go through together. All those funerals, all that. Ten, I mean, my guess is they were two old buddies who saw everything. And in that, Joshua says to his friend Caleb, well done, my friend. You deserve this land. So he gives Caleb the land of Hebron, and Caleb goes and battle and wipes them all out and takes it for himself. Chapter 15, you get more allotment of the land. Uh, chapter 15 is all about uh, Judah, the tribe of Judah getting their land. Go back to the uh, map there. Judah's at the very bottom there, the purple. It's very significant because what comes out of Judah? you got Jerusalem, you got kings, you got David, all the way up to Jesus. So Judah gets their land in chapter 15. Chapter 16 and 17 is the land that's given to Ephraim and Manasseh. Chapter 18 is the land that's given to Benjamin. Chapter, we're already in chapter 19. Isn't that quick? See, I've told you. We're fast. Chapter 19, it's the land that's given to the tribes of Simeon, Zebulun, Essachar, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, and finally to Joshua himself. Like Joshua's, I, I've been faithful. Joshua gets his land. When you get to chapter 20, what you see is the establishment of cities of refuge is what they called them in Israel. And this is important because back then sometimes you needed protection. Like every once in a while, an accident, when it, let's say you accidentally killed somebody, uh, like you're going too fast in your camel and you, I don't know, manslaughter, I don't know. I, do, I don't know. You know what would typically happen just in the rage of losing a, lost, uh, losing a loved one, a family would typically be enraged by that. You know what they want to do to you? They want to kill you. And so what happened is uh, God provided cities of refuge all over Israel where if that happened and you needed protection, you could go to a city of refuge and everyone knew that hands off, you cannot go into a city of refuge and kill somebody who's on the run until a judge was able to be, uh, uh, come in and help adjudicate the situation. So chapter 20 is just the text saying, and there's a city of refuge here and a city of refuge there. The next chapter, chapter 21, is the establishment of towns uh, for, Le for the Levites. Now, the Levi, the Levi, the Levi was a son of Judah and, uh, I mean, a son of... Uh, Jacob and one of the 12 tribes, but the Levites had a very special purpose. They were the ones who were going to serve as the priests before God and the people. So they didn't have their own land. God did not give the, the Levites land. He scattered them throughout the 12 tribes of Israel, and they served there ministering to God for the people. And so that happens in chapter 21. Chapter 22, the eastern tribes get to go back home. Hang with me. I know I'm going fast through all this. I don't know if you remember the beginning of our story, but the, the, the land in the east, Manasseh, uh, Gad, and Reuben, they got their land early because of the days of Moses. And in the beginning of Joshua, Joshua says, here's the deal. You still have to cross over the Jordan with the rest of your brothers, and you've got to fight alongside them. And when they get all of their land, you can have your land too. And so what you see in chapter 22 is they did that. They were faithful. They went with their brothers, and they went to battle. They helped them to secure their land, and then they get to go back home. And so what you get in chapter 22 is the eastern tribes get to go back home to their own land and to their families and to their farms, etc. But when they get there, the first thing they do is they build a memorial uh, stones, memorial stones right on the other side of the Jordan River because they're afraid long term that their descendants will forget the stories or that the Jordan River itself will serve as a boundary between the eastern and the western and they'll move into two different directions. And so they want to build a memorial stone to remind their descendants, we are a part of Israel. Their God is our God. We're one people. But the people on the west didn't know what they were doing. 
and they were confused by it. And when they saw these stones, they thought that they were trying to build themselves an alternative place to worship with an alternative altar. And they got so upset and so enraged. In chapter 22, civil war almost breaks out among the people. I mean, just as soon as God fulfills his promises, civil war almost breaks out. And they have to have a big conference together. And in the diplomacy, they figure, oh, so you weren't trying. No, we're not trying to worship a new God or a new place. It was, this was for. And it was all good. And they all went home and lived in peace. So that's, that's where we're at, up to chapter 22. Chapter 23 Joshua's going to make his great farewell speech. But what you'll see in all throughout Joshua, especially in this middle, the heart of Joshua, there are a lot of battles, there's a lot of destruction, there's a lot of death, and then there's a lot of allotment of land. But in the midst of it, my guess is, if you're like me, what might strike you is the command that God has for Israel to totally annihilate and exterminate everybody in the lands they're taking. Does that ever bother anyone else when you're reading through that? Does it, do you ever think, why would God have... I mean, it is one thing in war. We all get war is bad and terrible, and we understand there's casualties and and armies and, you know, fatalities, and we get that. But what we don't like, what we don't appreciate, what offends us, and really even the world, world, world around is, I mean, we're talking exterminate not just soldiers in an army. We're talking about men, women, children, old people, young people, everybody, animals, wiped out. And so there's something that hits each one's things. Okay, what is up with that? And sometimes, if you've not thought this, you'll run across people, in terms of your faith, you'll run across people who are like, it seems to me like the God of the Old Testament is a totally different God than the New Testament. Like, the God in the Old Testament is angry, and he's hacked off, and he's smiting everybody, and everybody's falling dead. Then you get to the New Testament, you've got the face of Jesus, and he loves everybody, and he's kissing all the babies. And I mean, you, you know, I don't know if you ever felt that tension, but I want us to just, I, I, I know this is kind of different than most of the messages, but I want for just a moment, I want to talk about why would God have Israel go in and totally annihilate and exterminate the people who live in the land of Canaan? So if you could grant me just for, you might not have ever asked this question and you don't care if that's the case, you have my permission to take a small nap. I'll wake you up in just a moment. For those of you who've asked that, here, here's, my, here's my guess. It bothers us when we read of those things because if it happens today, then the Geneva Convention comes up. We think to ourselves, the UN should step in. We'll demand investigations. We'll invest indictments concerning war crimes, the enforcement of treaties at Geneva. We would be totally, if the American forces said, we're going to go in Iraq and just kill everybody, like the whole, everyone who's in Iraqi is just going to be gone, the American people wouldn't tolerate that for a second. They'd be, are you serious? We are not for this policy whatsoever. And yet you see this taking place in the people of Israel. They're supposed to go and wipe out everybody. And in the end, it's disturbing to us. And it'd be one thing if we could just say, oh, well, you know, they live at a, they're living in a much more primitive-minded culture, right? I mean, this was thousands of years ago. They're not as civilized as we are today. They're not as intellectually uh, knowledgeable as we are today. So back then, you had to just expect people to act like this, you know, primitive-minded, different time, different culture, different place. But the problem we have in the text is, that in the end, these things happen in the book of Joshua, not because Joshua's primitive-minded, not because the Israelites are living at a different time and a place, a different culture. It happens because God tells them to do it. And thus, we don't have primitive-minded God or different time and place culture God. What we have is God saying to his people, exterminate them all, annihilate them all. The Hebrew word for this is called the harem, H-E-R-E-M. Oftentimes, it will be translated in your Bibles as the band, it does mean to totally annihilate or totally destroy. And you see, God demands it, even expects Israel, when they take their land of inheritance, to do just this. So this is where we must begin. We must understand that the responsibility for this extreme action rests with God alone. 
He says to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, let me read this for you. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations that are larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must totally destroy them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Anyone watch the original Karate Kid? Remember at the end? That evil sensei that none of us likes, that guy says, no mercy. That's his big mantra. We hate that guy, don't we? There it is in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. Why would God do this? Let me give you three reasons. Now, I need you to know up front, even at the end of my three reasons, I've still got questions, and I'm still a little bothered by it. But this might help you some hooks in terms of why this extreme action at this time and place. Number one, the Bible makes it very clear that if the Canaanites remained in the land, they would corrupt the people of Israel and they would fall into sin and apostasy. I mean, this is just the brutal reality is if Israel were to allow the, the Canaanites to remain in the land, what would probably happen because of Israel's own heart, they would eventually turn away from God. They'd begin to adopt the practices of those who live near them and begin to worship their gods and do all sorts of evil against God. And so going back to Deuteronomy 7, the next two verses in verse 3 and 4 says, Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they're going to turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and then the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Or Deuteronomy 7, verse 16, a little bit further in that chapter, you must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. And so it looks like God is, is a warning here. For the sake of my people, that they'll obey me, that they'll be faithful to me, we can't have the Canaanites still in that land, or their hearts will go, go other directions. Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses gives the people, these are rules for warfare. Like you're wondering about the Geneva Convention, here it is in Deuteronomy 20. Here's the rules for the people of God in warfare. It begins in verse 10 by saying, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. So it begins with diplomacy. Right? Don't just go around just killing everybody and just attacking cities. Go and offer terms of peace and see if there can't be some sort of diplomatic relationship. Verse 11, if they accept and open, and open their gates, then all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, then lay siege to the city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Well, look at verse 16. It shifts here. In verse 16, however, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, which is the land we're talking about, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the ites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, listen, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. And if you just read through the history of Israel, that's exactly what happens. Because some actually do remain in the land. They don't completely annihilate everybody. And what happens is you fast forward into Israelite history. The Israelites, they, they don't obey this command from God, and it does turn their hearts away from him. And they begin to worship other gods and begin to imitate the practices of foreign nations. If you read, you know what book of the Bible comes after Joshua? Judges. Terrible book. It's a book that is all the people did what was right in their own eyes. And they began to worship other gods and do all sorts of evil things. If you go to all the kings of Israel and the northern tribes, 
Same thing, one after the other, just fails to worship God alone. So one is, God knows if any of them are left, it will turn the hearts of God away from, uh, from, from God himself. Number two, the faith and practices of the Canaanites were so evil and wicked in the eyes of God that in some way you could see God is exacting his judgment on them through Israel. Like they are a wicked people. These seven nations and those who live in it, we aren't talking about a people who were innocent before God or they're just simply minding their own business and one day out of nowhere an invading army sweeps through. We're talking about a people, listen, we're talking about a people who routinely offer their children as burnt sacrifices to their false gods. But they take their little children, their, their little sons and daughters, and they would burn them in a sacrifice to their false gods. We're talking about a people who had so absolutely had no regard whatsoever for the Creator and were filled with such evil that they were committing the grossest forms of sexual immorality and calling it a religious ritual. And so out of that, remember uh, the promise that God gives to Abraham is 500 years before Joshua. Listen, this is what he said, 500 years before Joshua. This is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for then the sin of the Amorites, or for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 500 years before Joshua even comes onto the scene, God says to Abraham, four generations from now, the sins of these people are going to be so great in my eyes, it will be time to act. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 to 6. Listen to what he says here. This is important for us too, in terms of how we live in, in Jesus. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Now, what's, what's God saying here? Is they're going to get this land? Is it because they're so righteous? No, but because they're so wicked. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So understand, third time now, that not, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess for you are stiff-necked people. Now, this is important. The wickedness of the people here, this is important for us in Jesus. You need to know that God has made us promises through the blood of Jesus. He has accepted us. He has made us promises. They are coming to fruition. And you know why that's happening? Is it because of your righteousness? No. It's because of God's righteousness and God's faithfulness and God's goodness. At no time should we ever receive the good gifts from God through Jesus Christ and pat ourselves on the back and say, we really are good. We really do deserve this. I mean, God must be looking down from heaven and seeing me in my office and I'm probably praying and reading my Bible and I bet his heart just pitter-patters and he thinks to himself, that Sam just deserves everything that I'm giving to him. I mean, never are we allowed to do that, right? We recognize who, I mean, Sam in his office recognizes who he is. And he knows it isn't about his righteousness. It's about God's grace and his mercy and his kindness. And so three times for the people of Israel. Now, when you get to the land, don't be patting yourself on the back thinking you're all that. It's about me. And it's about their wickedness. And that's why I've done this. So that's another reason. One more verse out of this. De Deuteronomy 12, 12, verse 31. I mentioned this earlier. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Number three, okay? Third, third reason I'd give you is these seven nations of Canaan have conspired against Israel. 
Now, God says early on, he makes a promise that those who bless his people, he will bless, and those who curse his people, he will curse. And these nations have gathered together, have aligned themselves in such a way to be against. They want to destroy the Israelites. Like, they, they want to exterminate, annihilate the Israelites. And so in the end, because of that, you see God is coming together in, in Joshua 9 and 10 and 11 to say, yeah, these are my people, my presence is with them, and I'm blessing them. And so in the end, we think theologically through Joshua. We, we understand Ooh, there's some problematic things in there. But we think theologically through it. And what we recognize, too, is in, in this time and place, when, when nations go to battle and, the, and, and one side is victorious and one side is the loser, do you know who in the end gets credit for that? You know who gets credit in the end for that? The gods of those nations. So when is, the Israelites go against these Canaanite uh, nations, it isn't just Joshua versus the leaders of their armies or the Israelite armies versus the other armies of the you know, Girgashites and Amorites. It's about their gods versus our God. It is a contest in, a cos in the cosmos, and in the end, theologically, God says, I am the one and only true God. There are no gods that are like me. There are no gods that are above me. There are none that can beat me. I alone am God. And what you see in the outworking of Joshua is this, a story about how our creator God, in whom the whole world belongs, and this is important, the whole world belo belongs to God at one stage in history of salvation requires a portion of the earth from the powers of the world that has claimed it for themselves and defended their claim by war and reliance on false gods. And this God, in the end, says, the kingdom of God, my reign and rule, needs to break out in the world and the nations in this place in this time. Thus the Lord's triumph over the Canaanites testifies to the world that the God of Israel, the one true and living God, is the one who has absolute claim. And so what you see is, not that Israel's given permission, hey, everywhere you go, just slaughter people, right? That you don't see that in the entire Old Testament. It's a very limited, it's a very limited mission. These seven nations at this time in this place. That's it. The land of these seven nations were going to be devoted to God, and the Lord's people were supposed to live there as a sign and witness to the nations of what God intended for them to be from the very beginning. Now, this is important because this is just parallels where we are as a church. The reason why God, in salvation history, the reason why God wanted to give this portion of land to the Israelites is so that his people could live there and from that place be a sign and a witness and a light to the world of what God intended for them to be from the very beginning. Do you remember God's heart from the very beginning, what he intended? I mean, if you just go back to Genesis 1 and 2, God's intention for his creation, that they would live with him in such peace and reconciliation that there'd be no divide by way of sin and, right, and iniquity, that it would just be peace between them. But not only that, there would be peace between his creation, between right, the, the man he made and the woman he made. And the, that's what God's heart always has longed for. And now in this land of Israel, he wants to bring his people there, that they might live with him and with each other in such a way that when the, when the world around them sees it, they'll know that's what God intended from the very beginning. And so God gives them in history the law to help them, right? The Ten Commandments to help them in their quest to live at peace with God and with one another. And I'm telling you, this same thing of being a light and a salt and a witness to the world what God intended from the very beginning is true for the church of Jesus Christ. The mission of Israel to be a light to the world around them is the same mission we have to live in such a way that when the world sees it, they'll know God exists and what they see among us they can't find anywhere else. And it's about us living in community in such a way empowered by the Holy Spirit that when the world sees how we live together and with God, they will know something, this is where God is. Something special is happening in that place. And so it should manifest itself over and over again that we live in such a way that when the world, see the world does not take note of people who all look alike getting together and hanging out. The world doesn't notice that. 
That happens all the time all over the place. But what if the world found a place on the face of the earth where people who were black and white and Hispanic and rich and poor and old and young and from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different preferences and different personalities, what if they came together and loved each other in such a way, served each other in such a way that when the world saw it, they would say to themselves, I've never seen anything like that before. See, I'm telling you, that becomes the mission of God's people in Israel and also the mission of His church, even the Living Stones Church, that that becomes our mission to be all around the community a light and a witness of what God intended all along. He's always wanted you to live in relationship with Him in this way. He's always wanted you to be able to choose a path of forgiveness and not a a path of bitterness and to live like this. And every time we come together and serve one another and love one another in a way that makes the world go, it becomes that sign and witness that the kingdom of God is advancing. And just like God needed the kingdom of God to show up in a very tangible, real way in the land of Israel, he needs the kingdom of God to show up in a real, tangible way right here at 718 East Daimler because when it happens, it means the kingdom of God is advancing. And it's just like Jesus calling the world to, you can receive the reign and rule of God, the kingdom of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, it becomes that demonstration of God intended all along. And so every time a kid at Monroe School is blessed by this church or their I-step test scores go way up or they get books and hats and mitts, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God and the reign and rule of God advancing. And every time a kid at Riley High School is in such discouragement and depression and despair, they don't know what to do but cut themselves with a razor blade, any time that they find hope in Jesus and are able to put that down, it is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. And any time somebody is trapped in all sorts of addictions and it's destroying their marriage and all the relationships around them, any time they find freedom in Christ Jesus, it becomes a demonstration of the kingdom of God advancing. It becomes a sign and a witness of what... Anytime we tell our story of, this is where we've been. This is what I've been into. This is what I've been involved in. And I mean, and it's a brutal story, an ugly story that you would think would make us wince, but the end of the story is, and God was so crazy in love with me that he just rescued me from where I was, and he gave me a brand new life. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but I'm telling you where I'm at right now is a path that God has, it becomes a sign and a witness to the world of what it's always intended to be from God. And so what you see is this advancing kingdom, and that's what the beginning of this salvation history starts there with the story of Joshua. Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua, right? And in the New Testament, we've got another one that we're following. You know what his name is? It's Yeshua. That first Joshua is, 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 is advancing the kingdom of God and the means that God gives to him. And it's the second Yeshua, our Jesus, that we're following after that's also advancing that kingdom of God, that those who are being tormented by demons find relief and those who are in sickness find healing. It is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. And that's what we want the world to see and be able to go, we've not seen that anywhere else. And I've experienced that in my own life, and I know you have too. I remember when we were in Abilene, Texas, we, uh, we had good friends who invited us to their church. They had small groups. We didn't go to the church, never been to the small group. They invited us to their small group one Sunday evening, and Kelly and I went. And in that group, I'll never forget, the leader, they had a time of worship, and then the leader just opened up. Does anyone have anything we need to pray about? And there's a woman in the group named Sherry. Didn't know her. She didn't know us. And she began to talk about her husband who had just had an affair and was leaving her. Like, he had already had an affair. He was on his way out. And I was impressed, one, that she'd even share that with us being present because we were complete strangers, Kelly and I. And in the end, here's what happened. This is the thing I never saw before in my life. Grew up in the church, never saw this. As soon as she got done, just talking about her life situation, three or four ladies in that group went right next to her, put their arms around her, and just prayed that God would bless her, protect her, and heal her. Her husband left and never came back. But we watched in that group. We just stayed in that group. And that group, we watched as they blessed her, they walked with her, they took care of her, they served her. And you know what? In the end, sure it was okay. God really did heal her heart and heal her life. 
And we also saw in that same group, there was a woman there named Sammy. And she, and I like that name, so that was good. So her name was Sammy, and she had, uh, her boyfriend was in prison, and she had two sons who were like, had every ADD, PhD, whatever they, you could have, they had it. And I just watched that group, love them, and serve them, and pray for them. And one day, Sammy decided to bring one of her friends from the woman's battered shelter. So put that in your mind. She's coming from a woman's battered shelter. Same thing. We're worshiping in the group and having a time just to pray together. And Sammy, she didn't have anything to pray for. And Sammy shares some things in her life she wants to pray for. So the group just prays for Sammy. And her friend, while we're praying for Sammy, starts bawling. I'm not like one of those cool tears that just kind of barely rolls down. I mean, like that heaving sob kind of thing. So, you know, no supernatural divine revelation necessary. The leader asks, you know, something we pray for you. I'll never forget what she said. This is what she said. I have never seen love like this ever. Now, think about her story. She's coming from a woman's battered shelter. How did she get there? Because she probably hooked up with a guy who was beating her and abusing her. How did that happen? Probably as a reflection of her relationship with her father. Or so, I mean, you just kind of, and then you're like, that's probably right. Like, she's not saying this in a flippant way. She probably never has seen love like this ever. And we were just taking it for granted. It's just the norm of our life. It's we just love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, encourage one another. And it became for her a light and a witness of what God's intention for her own. And so we saw her give her life to Jesus, and Jesus turned her life around in miraculous ways. And how did that happen? Because somebody gave her a track and, you know, I mean, no, no, no. It's just simply living out life together with God and with one another that makes the world go, i gotta, I got to have that. I don't know what that is, but I've never seen that before, and I'm stuck here in bitterness and anger, but that. And this seems to be the point of Joshua, that kingdom as it expands. And you need to know... Our Yeshua is coming back. And I know Joshua seems violent, right? But if you go to Revelation, go to chapter 19, when our Yeshua returns, he's got a sword in his hand, and he's, and he's taken out those who have been opposed to the kingdom of God because in the end, in the end, nothing will exist that's outside the kingdom of God. Nothing. The good news for us is we're in the kingdom of God, which means every promise that God has made to us is going to come to pass. That every prayer we prayed for justice will be answered. Every prayer we prayed for healing will be answered. Every person that we've loved who's been diagnosed with sickness, with cancer, with diabetes, with a stroke, who had a massive heart attack, all God will one day right all of that. There will no longer be anything on the face of the earth that is contrary to the will of God. The only thing that will exist are those things that flow right out of the will of God. And in it, it will mean that God has kept every single one of his promises. Because in the end, they're unstoppable. And that's the point of Joshua. Not that we get tripped up with, ooh, that's kind of violent. But what we get captured by is, our God will always keep his word. If he's made, it a pro- if he's made you a promise, you can take it to the bank. In fact, I'm going to close with Joshua 21. We're going to go to chapter 21. Verses 43 and 45 say this. And I don't know if you like writing your Bible, but you've got my permission. If you want to highlight something, this is a passage to highlight. 43 to 45 says this. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them, and not one of, the, of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. That's the point. God always keeps his promises. And so, you have Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about Jesus, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, he wasn't yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, 
they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And you need to know this, if your heart is always longing to be reconciled to the Father, because you know the sins that are in your life, you know what happened last night, you know what happened this past week. Listen to me, listen to me. Satan loves to whisper those, to remind you of those things. You need to know this. Jesus has promised that his blood is sufficient to reconcile us back to the Father. It is a promise. And because of that, you need to know there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And Jesus has made us a promise that we can live right now in abundant eternal life. See, for the Gospel of John, eternal life doesn't just mean when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life is a qualitative state of life that begins now and lasts forever. Did you know because of Jesus, you are going to last forever in the mercy and grace of God and there's nothing you can do about it? Nothing. It's because of the promise of God. And they're unstoppable. That Jesus has made us a promise that even when death knocks on our door, the promise of Jesus is it will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word. And his last word will be life forever. It's a promise. Not because of our righteousness or our goodness, but because of God. And that's why we praise him. Amen? Let's stand. Let's praise God for our promises he's made through Jesus. Father, we come to you and thank you that you are good to us in every way. We thank you that you have made us promises, not because we deserve them, but because of your goodness and your mercy and your crazy love for us. And so we receive them with nothing more than just gratitude to say thank you. And we wish to glorify you this morning. We wish to say thank you. We want our lives just to be a reflection that we are living in your promises. And in that state of being able to live in your promises that we are continually lifting your name up and giving you glory and after glory. So use us, Lord, for the expansion of your kingdom. And we give you thanks. Thank you that in every way you are faithful. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.